Would you open the word of the Lord with me once more to the epistle of James? And this morning we're reading chapter 1, verses 23 and 25. As you're finding this place in your Bibles, we recall that in this part of the letter, James is speaking of being a doer of the word of God and not merely a hearer. For James and for the rest of the Bible, hearing is not complete without doing. In other words, once we become children of God by grace through faith in Christ, we have some very definite responsibilities. And that's the larger point that James is making in this passage. Though it begins by nothing but God's grace, the Christian life is an active life. It is a life of obeying, of serving, and of working under the authority of the implanted word. The Christian life is a life controlled and guided by the Word. The very Word that James says has brought us to life, the implanted Word that saved us, that regenerated us. And so James is making the very simple point that obedience to the Word must follow the conversion of the sinner. We've also seen in previous sermons that there is a necessity of ridding ourselves of anything that might be incompatible with our new life in Christ. And that we must cultivate continually the virtue of humility because we've been called to live under the Word. And so James says we must each day put away all filthiness, verse 21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive the powerful, effectual Word of God in meekness, that Word that is so powerful it is able to save our souls. In the verses we're about to read this morning, James continues to show us what it means to hear the Word. And he further establishes the indispensable relationship between hearing the Word and acting on the Word. And so let's begin our reading this morning at verse 23 and see what we can find in the Word of God. James says, For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer. He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and he goes away, and at once he forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And now may the Lord bless us as we probe the riches of his wonderful word. As we begin our investigation of this passage, we need to observe something interesting. Notice the way James speaks of the word of God. Now, we've made the observation a number of times that this little book, five chapters, is saturated with references to the Old Testament scriptures. That is the Bible of the first century. And it's also saturated with references to the teachings of Jesus. And as we go through the letter in the next few weeks, we'll continue to encounter the fact that this is a a word-saturated book of the Bible. But in the passage we've just read, James uses two very interesting synonyms for the Bible. Look with me first in verse 25. There you see how James uses two other names for the Word of God. He he speaks of the perfect law and the law of liberty. 
Now, we're going to talk about those, but, but I'm intrigued first by the fact that James speaks of the Bible as law. It's either the, the perfect law or the law of liberty, but yet it is, it is the law of God. The whole Bible is the law of God. And when James uses that word law, he has in mind the whole written revelation of God, both, we would say, the Old and the New Testaments. And that's a common thing for a man like James to do. The Old Testament saints often spoke of the entirety of the Old Testament as law. For many Jews, the word law was shorthand for the whole revelation of God. All 39 books, we would say, of the Old Testament. All of those inspired and infallible books. But they are, as the word law indicates, they are the infallible record of God's will. So when James is using the word law to to speak of the whole Bible, he, he has an emphasis there on the fact that in this revelation, in this written revelation, is the unveiling of the will of Yahweh. It's written down. His standards. His demands. Everything that he expects from us. Let's suppose you lived back in the first century. And James was your pastor. And you went to Pastor James and you said, Pastor James, I'm, I'm struggling to know what God's will is. Will you help me? And Pastor James doubtless would say, open your Bible. Open your Bible. Because in your Bible is the infallible, all-sufficient, inerrant record of God's will for you. It contains all you need to know. It contains everything you need to serve the Lord and to please Him because He so graciously saved you. Now, we have 27 other books, inspired and infallible, that make up the Bible, but they too include law. For we read in the New Testament the will of God. And this is James' point. We, we go to the Word and we find the will of the Lord. We find what He expects from us. What He expects not only from all humanity, but what He expects from those He's redeemed. And it's clearly set forth in writing. It's been inscribed and you, you hold it. You hold it in your hands this morning. So the word law is a very important word for James because that's where God's will is found. And then he speaks of that law first as a perfect law. The word perfect means this. It reflects the very nature of its author. It is perfect. Now, this is the internal testimony of the Word itself. I mean, James is, is not offering out some abstract notion of theology. He, he, is, he is really telling you what the Word says about itself. The Word says of itself that it is the perfect record of Yahweh's will. Remember King David. Remember King David in Psalm 19. And he's extolling the glories of the Word of God. And he says, the law, the law of the Lord is perfect reviving 
the soul. And so all of Yahweh's word, every word from Yahweh is perfect. It cannot be made better. It cannot be improved. It doesn't need any additions or alterations or refinements. It is the perfect expression of the divine will. It reflects the nature of its author. It is exactly and precisely what we need. It is, it is all we need. And being perfect, it is absolute, it is permanent, and it is unchangeable to the degree God himself is permanent and absolute and unchangeable. It is perfect. But the perfection of the word also means that it reveals what is true. It's perfect because it tells the truth. The Bible tells the truth concerning the matters of which it speaks. It is a perfect treasure of truth. The Word perfectly reveals the truth about God. Now think about how massive a statement that is, how sweeping and broad a claim that is. The, the Bible, only the Bible, the Word of God reveals what is true about God. There's one book you need to know the truth about God, and that is the Word of God. It tells the truth about God. It tells the truth about the world. The Bible perfectly tells us what we need to know about the world, where it came from, why it came into existence, its purpose, its story, its tragedy, its current meaning, the meaning of history and where it's going and how it will all end. The Bible tells the truth about the world. You cannot understand the world of creation or the world of humanity if you don't read the Word of God. It tells you the truth. And the Word tells you the truth about you and me. It tells the truth about us. That's even going to be suggested further in this passage. The Word of God reflects back to us the truth about who we are, our dignity, image bearers of God, and our sin, those who have rebelled against Him. And our need for a Savior. And our destiny. The judgment of God. It is a perfect treasure of truth. And being perfect, it can be trusted and it can be believed and it is worthy of proclamation. But then James describes the law, the Bible, as the law of liberty. Now, you may have expected James to talk about the perfection of Scripture because we believe that as Protestants, as Reformed, as conservative believers in Jesus Christ, we believe uh, that the Bible is the perfect treasure of God's truth. But it is also a law, the law, as he says, of, of liberty. You can see in chapter 2, verse 12, James uses this phrase again. He speaks of the Bible as the law of liberty. That's surprising. It is beautiful, but nonetheless surprising. 
In the simplest of terms, Jesus, rather James, is teaching us that God's written revelation gives liberty. It gives true freedom to anyone who brings themselves under its authority. And only those who live in accordance with God's word are truly free. Again, what a staggering claim James is making simply by causing or calling the, the law of God the, the law of freedom. He is saying that every human being outside the authority of God's word is not free. And only those who are under the authority of the will and word of Yahweh truly are liberated. What a claim. Maybe when you hear the word law, you're like a lot of us. You immediately embrace notions of bondage and restrictions, perhaps even something harsh and foreboding. We might not never, or rather, that sounds like how I used to talk before I came out of Coleman County. We might not ever associate law and liberty because they seem hopelessly incompatible. Law? And liberty? Think about the Ten Commandments. What do most people think of when they think of the Ten Commandments? I think honesty, if it prevailed, honesty would say, I think of chains. I think of unreasonable limitations and equally unreasonable expectations. I think of an excessive burden being foisted upon us from above, designed by God to squash our freedom, to take away our joy, to take away our, our happiness, to restrict us, to put us into the tight confines of some exterior mold which we're being forced into. But James... James would say, no, no, you got it wrong. The law of God is the law of freedom. Let me show you what he means. Think about when the Ten Commandments were first given to Israel, the old covenant people of God. The Lord did not give those commandments to Israel in order to place a burden upon them. He gave those commandments to Israel in order to free them to free them from their bondage. God's law was given to Israel as they came out of Egyptian bondage. And those laws given at Sinai revealed how Yahweh demanded that they live before him as his elect and beloved people, as his free people. The law given at Sinai, as it's been said, was not a stern imposition, but a paternal directive arising from love. God loved them so much. He redeemed them from Pharaoh's power. He brought them through the Red Sea, and then he took them to Sinai, and he said, here is the way free people live, and he gave them the blueprint for life. There is freedom and obedience. The law set forth the pathway the covenant people were to walk upon as they conducted their lives as now God's redeemed and delivered people. 
The law wasn't given as a means or a mechanism of salvation because their salvation was all of grace. They were already saved when they received the Ten Commandments. Rather, the law was given to set them free, to set out in writing the lifestyle for those who've been liberated. So when James talks about the law of liberty, he's in agreement with all of the Bible. The law was given in order to safeguard their freedom, the freedom God had won for them by himself without their help when he broke them free from the Egyptian chains. The law would keep them from falling back into bondage. It would keep them free. And so for those who've been saved by God's grace, the keeping of God's commandments brings true liberation. The law reveals the way our Redeemer and our Father desires that we live as recipients of his grace in Jesus. He saved us out of Egyptian bondage. And as we follow his will, we find our lives. We don't lose them. Our lives are fulfilled, not restricted. We are liberated, not confined. We are set free by his commands. As the scripture rolls forward, as Revelation progresses as God tells us more. We move from Sinai through the history of Israel. We rock along through the monarchy and we come to the time of the prophets and the exile and the return through the prophet Jeremiah. The Lord says this about the law. Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, When I will make a new covenant, a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, I will put my law within their heart and I will write it and I will be their God and they will be my people. In this new covenant inaugurated by the Lord Jesus Christ, the divine law is inscribed by the finger of God on our hearts, not like the law at Sinai was inscribed on stones. It is written in our hearts. And you see, the prophet is preparing the way for Jesus, the author and finisher of the new covenant. Oh, oh! indeed, God's law, when you, when you looked at God's law from the standpoint of being a sinner, it was imposing, it was demanding. If you looked at the Ten Commandments, it did produce in our hearts and, and in their hearts a deep sense of condemnation. The law did expose us for what we are, and there was a certain bondage of sin and guilt and inability that the law did expose But ultimately, the law at Sinai was given to point us to the one who would set our souls free. Jesus, the God-man, who perfectly kept God's law, who did for sinners what they would never do and could never do for themselves. He met God's holy and just demands for righteousness. And then he paid for our sins and the violation of God's will through his death on the cross. Paul would say very explicitly in Romans 8, what the law could not do, that is, save you. Weak as it was through the flesh, God did. 
sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh. And listen to this. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then in Romans 10, for Christ is the end, the termination point, the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And for these reasons, James calls the Bible and every holy command therein the law of liberty. When you understand the word of God and the law of God through the ministry of Jesus and through his fulfillment, there is freedom. There is life. When we surrender to Christ and to his commands, there is life. Do you remember the Great Commission? And I'm not asking if you can recite it. I'm asking if you remember it. Do you really know the Great Commission? Well, listen again with your ears very attentive. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He told those 11 disciples, take my commandments and take my gospel and go proclaim and see me save the nations and bring them into the covenant community through baptism. And then you start teaching them to be under my commandments, my law. And this is what James is saying, the law that frees us. If the Son sets you free... <laughs> You are free indeed. We only know that heavenly freedom as we live the kind of life that's appropriate for those who've been saved, as we are filled with the Spirit, and we've received His law, His Word into our hearts, and it is no longer a burden or bondage. There is a new obedience. God has written His law on our hearts. He has sent His Spirit into our hearts. And there's a new obedience now rising from within. And we are motivated and empowered to keep this law by His free grace and by His love. And only in that kind of a life is there any freedom at all. The perfect law and the law of liberty. Well, having spoken of the Word of God as a perfect law and the law of liberty, now James lays out his exhortation for us to become doers of the Word. That is, we must put the Word into action in practical ways in everyday living. And in verses 23 and 24, James gives us a very simple illustration that makes his point very emphatic and very clear. And the point he's illustrating is that we must hear this perfect law. We must hear, really hear, this law of liberty. But what does it mean to hear? And now he illustrates his point. The man in the mirror. 
James moves us to think of a person who stands in front of the mirror. Maybe he or she is on their way out the door uh, to work in the morning, and James says they look intently at their natural face in the mirror. They are checking everything like we do to make sure everything is relatively decent and in order. And then that person quickly turns and heads out the door, but in no time at all, maybe, maybe as they arrive at their place of work, they, they run into the bathroom again to look in the mirror one more time because they have forgotten what they look like. And James says, this person looked in the mirror but really did not see. Their looking made no lasting difference. He saw the image of himself in the mirror, but only... A momentary look. It was a casual, routine look that would bear no practical results. He, he looked, and like we all do, looked carelessly, maybe giving only flippant consideration, and he soon forgets what he saw. He looked, but wasn't changed. Now, that's what James is saying. He is talking about those who hear the word. They're like the person who looks at the mirror. They hear the word, but it doesn't change them. It doesn't change them. That person may be repeatedly exposed to the word, but it doesn't come inside. It isn't received. It fails because they omit to do anything about it. That person ignores what he's perceived. He is casting an informal glance at the word without any corrective action. There is no application of the word. And he is like that man in the mirror who looks and forgets. And he looks and he forgets. And he looks and he forgets. And on goes the horrible cycle of life. Looking but not seeing. Listening but never hearing. In his commentary on this passage, Dr. Kistemacher explains this further. He says, this man hears God's word proclaimed, but he fails to respond. Oh, he may see his reflection, but he quickly adjusts only his external appearance and he walks away. He hears the word preached. He makes minor adjustments and he goes his way, but his internal disposition is unchanged. Another has said, this man in the mirror takes a casual glance at his physical appearance, and that may be sufficient as far as that goes, but a casual approach to the reading of God's Word is not sufficient. And this is the point James is making. The stakes are high. Notice in verse 22, James says, look, if you're not a hearer of the Word, that is, if you hear but there's no doing, then you, you are deceiving yourselves. Now, that's twice James has warned us about being deceived. He, he did it first in verse 16. He is concerned about the saints being deceived, and he's telling us if you're just hearing it, and it's going in your ears and passing through your brain and popping out the other side, then, then you are deceived about your own salvation, perhaps, about your love for Christ or about your usefulness for God, and none of those are good. You, you are deceived if you're simply hearing and it isn't changing you. And lo and behold, Jesus had already said such a thing, hadn't he, in the gospel according to Luke. He stopped and he looked into the eyes of those 
who were following him, who were listening to his teaching, and he said to them, why, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? And this is what James, the brother of Jesus, is asking you. How do we hear and not do? To hear using God's definition of hearing, we must be doers. We must be doers of the word. On the negative side, we're not to be simple hearers. On the positive side, we're to be doers. Doers, according to verse 25, who act. Who act. True hearing and the true reception of the word must result in obedience. But how do we move from merely hearing to effectual doing? How can we stop deceiving ourselves and, and put the word into action? Well, there's help here for you. Verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, there's the clue. In verse 23, James speaks of the man who looks at himself in the mirror, and then he uses what appears to be the same word in verse 25. It's the same English word. The man looks in the mirror, and then James says we should, in verse 25, look into the perfect word of the Lord, or the perfect law of the Lord. Now, those are the same words, look and look, but they are different words in the original language of the New Testament. In verse 25, the looking is a lot different than the looking in the mirror. This word looking means to look with deliberation, with intensity, to look with thorough concentration. It is to look with the determination to miss nothing, to miss no detail. There are two places, two amazing places in the New Testament where this very word is used, look, that will help us understand the point James is making. In John 20, verses 4 through 7, we have the story of the empty tomb. The, the women come to the tomb of Jesus on that Sunday morning. The stone, that massive stone, is, is rolled away. And, and Peter and John, the disciples, make their way to the tomb of Jesus on that Sunday morning. And they have a foot race. Peter and John, who can get there first? And John records this. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple, John, that is, outran Peter. And listen to this, listen to this. He reached the tomb first and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. It's the kind of looking that the apostle John did when he peered into the tomb he thought would be filled with the body of his Savior and he sees it's empty and his mind is blown and he begins to scan every square inch of that tomb and he's looking to find any 
fraction of the body of Jesus. He can't believe it. And he looks and he looks and he looks and he looks again. And he's giving everything he has to this looking because this is the moment that will change his life. And then John 20, 11, it appears again. This time Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb and she stands weeping on the outside. And John says, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Do you understand what James is trying to tell us? In order to become a doer of the word, you must stop and you must stoop and you must take a very close look. You must be engaged fully in looking. You must open the word or hear the word and give your all to it, to investigate it carefully. And oh, my dear modern brethren, we cannot do this on the fly. We cannot be multitasking and look. We cannot be distracted. We cannot be focusing on other things. We must be single-minded when we hear, single-minded when we look and read, and seriously and totally devoted in our approach to the hearing of God's Word. We must come into the place of teaching or proclamation with sobriety, believing that a message that not only will change our lives, but change the course of human history will be sounded yet again. And we must give careful attention to every detail intently and intensely applying all that we learn to our own lives. When we read the Word, when we hear the Word proclaimed, when it is taught by the church, we need to ask, how should my feet move in obedience? It is about your obedience and, and my obedience. And week after week, the church should gather expecting to hear from God and what God says to us, we take in and we meditate on it. We explore it. We mine it for all of its riches. And we find great blessing. There are blessings. There are blessings for seriously coming to the place of proclamation or seriously opening the word at home and reading it. There, there's a blessing, and that blessing is right here. The doer who is moved by the word, who, who acts in accordance with the word, will be blessed. Oh, oh, yeah, you bet we teach that obedience brings blessings. Absolutely we do, because the Word of God teaches it. The Lord God in mercy and in infinite grace blesses our obedience. He does it with grace. 
Oh, oh indeed, we, we've never earned a blessing, but yet he is promising us that as we obey and as we put feet to his word, we will be blessed in our doing. What a guarantee. When there is within us, watch this, when there is within us the wonderful union of God's truth and our action, then joy and blessing are the result. Blessings known in this life right now and blessings in the life to come. Now, that's a pretty good promise. Are you really hearing the word? Are you taking only a casual glance? Has the word of God made any difference in your life? Is the preaching and the reading of the word moving you? Is it moving you? Have you humbly received and welcomed the word into your heart to let it do whatever it does, as painful and as difficult as that might be, so that you will be blessed? Do you take seriously the things of God's kingdom. Let's ask it in a better way. Are you stopping and stooping and looking in? May God help us be those who hear and who do the word for his glory. Would you take just a moment to prepare your heart to come to the table of the Lord?